0: Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. the a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics.
1: And I'm Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. Today we've got a topic that is certain to fascinate you because it's based on a recent doctoral dissertation that was completed by a friend, Dr. Gabriel Higgard, and it's on assessing the potential transgender impact on girl champions in American high school track and field. He did this at the United States Sports Academy. He's worked as a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a professor at APU. He's a father of six and an army officer. Dr. Higgard thanks for coming on. We really appreciate your time and research.
2: Absolutely. I'm thrilled to uh, share with you today some of my research and excited to share with your audience. So I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Well, let's jump in. And I, I'm really curious of all the things you could write on. Why did you choose to do doctoral work on the issue of transgender sports policy?
2: Yeah. So in 2014, uh, collectively, we reached a transgender tipping point. That was actually the cover of a time uh magazine cover. And uh, around that same time, there was the adoption of the international transgender sport policy that really changed it at the international level. Um, at the around the same time, I started to do some Title IX coursework as part of my doctoral studies. And I got into some peer-reviewed journals uh, of some pretty absurd statements that were out there, such as there's no evidence of transgender advantage uh, at any point in transitioning and and other things similar to that and so i said okay well if if it is true that there is not good evidence to uh, suggest that we should se- separate the sexes then uh, then that is an opportunity for me to go into it and so it was a fascinating topic it was relevant and it had the potential to affect many lives and so uh, I kind of consider myself as a renaissance man, um, kind of doing a lot of different things, anything from being a football coach, strength coach, to um, some other cultural topics that I'm interested in. So I thought this would be a great chance for me to make positive difference.
0: Gabe, the thing I'm really curious about is you, you had to know that you were stepping into all sorts of minefields. Uh, when you undertook this research, what, what are what's some of the pushback that you got, some of the resistance that you got from your doctoral supervisors, from other doctoral students? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just really curious to know how people responded to you once you decided to do this area of research.
2: Yeah, so you're right. It's absolutely a hot topic and very contentious in modern context. Well, I tried to take the a perspective of, of strictly scientific objectivity as much as I can, almost like a forensic anthropologist, um, some someone like Jay Warner Wallace, if he goes and finds a dead body um, that, that has no hair, but it's it's been there, they're able to determine make a make a determination of sex, either male or female, um, from that perspective. And so I tried to be as strictly scientific uh, and, and objective as I could and try to take the emotions out of it. But for sure, even if you try to do that, there are other issues such as the language. I spent eight pages alone talking about definitions of what we mean when we say man or woman or male or female, um, boy or girl, um, and the different aspects related to LGBTQIA+ an expanding uh, acronym there. So it certainly is, is filled uh, filled with all kinds of uh, potential landmines. But I tried to go uh, strictly scientific, tried to not offend uh, where I could, but try to be faithful to uh, the truth.
0: And Gabe, you, just to follow up on that, you, you point out that when you review some of the other research that's been done in this area, uh, Presumably appealing to science, you know, alone, like like you've done in yours, but you also point out that there's, you know, there's there's bias that enters into the to some of the current research that's already been done. Uh, how did how did you keep from having some some of your own biases enter into your research?
2: Yeah, so I really kind of struggled with. Even how I was going to label things, because you're right, you know a lot of the current current research, um, it it almost assumes an ideology just with the verbiage, um, even within the titles of the peer-reviewed academic journals, such as using the terms uh, transgender woman and cisgender men to to describe the same person, but depending on their subjective, Self identification, so uh, it's something that I that I struggled with of, of okay how to do this best uh, and to be effective, um, and I and I'm not absolutely after finishing it after getting to the end I, I still kind of wondering if I if I did it quite right but I tried to really really strike a balance um, but some others that are currently out there you noted. Know, the um, other things that are already published Um, yeah it's very clear that their ideology is kind of established on the progressive end uh, even with just the wording in their titles
1: can you talk to us a little bit how and why this issue is so pressing in cultural in culture right now and i know we've had a shift in administration which brings a shift in certain policies towards this So why is this issue so pressing right now, and what are some of the policy issues that matter that are kind of coming down the pike, so to speak, that we're seeing played out before us?
2: Yeah, so this is perhaps the hottest issue in sport, Um, and it's because of the Biden executive order that was signed on day one of his presidency. Um, And so Biden, throughout his uh, campaign, um, he's been pretty clear about the direction he wanted to go. He wrote in a tweet that, um, and I'll quote, let's be clear, transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. There's no room for compromise when it comes to basic human rights. And so he built upon that pledge uh, with his executive order. And in that order, he says that, uh, and I quote, Children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom the locker room and school sports and so this executive order directs the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights um, and all the executive uh, actions of the federal government to pursue um, inclusion of transgender persons uh, at all levels and and even with sports and so um, these rights um, are going to go are going to basically um, flood throughout um, both collegiate and high school level of sport. Um, you've also seen you had the two Connecticut runners um, who were very average males um, go on to become 15 times state champions in that particular state. You had a division two athlete uh, who ran as a male, very average to mediocre Um, as competing as a male, who then transitioned to female and uh, was awarded the NCAA Division II National Championship. Uh, You've also got a flurry of pushback right now that's occurring. Uh, You've got lawsuits on behalf of the girls in Connecticut, um, which by the Alliance Defending Freedom, You've also got legislation that's sweeping across the country. It's been in place in Idaho, but it's also springing up uh, all over the place. Um, especially just, just this last week, there's been four different states who, had, who have advanced bills. And then finally, there's the looming Equality Act that's on the horizon.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Okay,
2: so the Equality Act was originally developed in 1974, and what it would do is amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes, similar to race um, and sex currently. And so, um, what it would do, it would it would make it very difficult for any governing body, whether it be state. Uh, the NCAA or high school federations to restrict access to transgender persons based on their ideology or even um, to restrict participation and and make hormonal requirements, etc. So from a competitive standpoint, it should not affect the male classification at all, um, although there are some safety issues that would be involved with that, with a biological female going in to participate with boys, Um, but there really is no competitive risk there. The really potential um, for massive change is at the female level of sport. The female classification could potentially be uh, fundamentally transformed. yeah so so my my research took basically three different steps so i first i wanted to establish that a males and females were different that we see a bimodal distribution that the actual performances were different then i looked at the effect of different uh of distance as related to that to see if okay if we gear towards more towards endurance are we going to see are we going to see the same uh difference as in power sports but then but the really crux of my uh research was uh, a statistical simulation that looked at the probability that one or more um potential female champions which is a biological male boy who's better than the best girl in the state would be um would be transgender and so uh the findings reveal uh, a really significant probability. So between 81 and 98% probability on uh, that simulation.
0: So, so basically what you concluded was a, a, a transgender male who's transitioning to female will almost always beat the best female. Is it, is that, did I get that right?
2: No. Um, no, it's more. So so look at my model. Um, basically, imagine that we're giant. We're, we're uh, the researcher. I'm a giant and I've got a bag full of participants in my hand. And this is the entire male field. Say it's 2000 individuals. And we've been told that 0.7 percent are transgender. So in this case, let's say it's 17 individuals out of this giant bag of 2000 individuals would be transgender. Well, I, as a researcher, am going to go pull out at random 17 individuals out of this bag and check the times on their shirts. And so if the time is better than the best female, um, I'd place them on the podium in front of her. And if they're not better than the best female, then I would set them off to the side. So that would be one trial. So I'd draw 17 names, um, sort them, see if, see if one of them, or more is better than the best female, and I do this 10,000 times, and, and so the 81% means that 81% of the time there was at least one transgender person on the podium in my simulation. Um, but beyond that, I was able to see uh, what is the mean number of transgender person at the top of the podium with these assumptions being true. Um, And the result was two to six transgender persons at the top. So uh, let's say in the 1600 meters, the top female was most commonly in seventh place. So there were six transgender persons uh, in front of
1: that that individual. Tell me what surprised you most about this research, because I'm assuming you went in with, you expected to see a certain kind of dominance of... Transgender athletes in female sports, transgender males, but did anything surprise you or catch you off guard either weaker or stronger than you expected going in
2: Yes, yeah, so i um I, a couple things so the first thing I didn't expect to quite see uh, the difference related to to distance, so I saw the the smallest performance difference was in the one hundred meters. And the 100 meters is, you know, geared more towards, yeah, geared towards power and explosiveness and strength. And, and visually, you can see that being manifest in, in the 100 meters, but we actually saw um, only 14% difference uh, in the means from, from males and females. And some of our higher numbers came in the endurance events. Um, and so there was a, a moderate positive correlation between um, between the number of boys that were better than the best female and distance. And so the, the differences were greater in the endurance events than even in the power events. So so that was the first one. Um, but the second one is is really just the extent of the difference it is so massive that uh, a lot of times we we don't appreciate it and so the mean the mean difference was 18 percent with the lowest being 14 and the highest being 24 percent but there was virtually zero overlap at the top of the classification so this meant in every event hundreds and even thousands of boys that were were better than the best female. Um, the closest it ever got was we had one case of uh, a girl here in California in 2017. In the long jump, she set the national record that had stood since before I was born, over 40 years ago. <laughs> this, this record had, had stood. and In California, in that year alone, she was beaten by 79 boys, and, and wow. her record may stand for, for decades. Um, In California, here here we are, um, 1,500 boys, 1,500 boys in the 200 through 1,600 meter races that I studied um, were better than the best girl in each event. So imagine the fastest girl. You, you're, we're, we're talking a visualization. We're looking at a picture of a girl running. She is the she is the fastest girl in the state. Her back is to the camera, um, and she's got individuals in front of her. There's fifteen hundred individuals that are in front of her faster than her. Um, every single one of those individuals will be male, and uh, and and those numbers are really. Um, kind of stark and, and shocking when you really get to it. So,
0: Gabe, let's let's be clear for our listeners here. What are some of the differences between men and women in you know in the events that you studied? I mean, what what make what makes that difference so significant?
2: Yeah. So, biologically, um, God has a bimodal design for humanity. Males are seven to eight percent taller. We have longer bones. Not only do we have bigger bones, but we also have a greater density and cross sectional area. Both with the, the humerus, is like the female humerus is only 65 percent of the males, and the femur is 85 percent of the males. Um, this leads to higher injury risk, lower force generation, reduced kinetic mass um males are bigger up to 36 percent on average upper bodies even more than that about 40 percent if you look at that distribution um, males have greater muscle mass and not only the the mass of the muscle but also the type of the muscle fast twitch muscle fibers which which are helpful in explosion and power and strength um in relation to slow slow twitch are a lot greater in males, as well as the, just the size of the fibers. Um, And then if you look at the heart and the lungs, cardiovascular system, the lungs are bigger, the heart's bigger, which leads to greater stroke volume and cardiac output. Uh, Males have 12% greater hemoglobin, which hemoglobin is a protein on red blood cells that carries oxygen to the cells. And so this leads to about a 30 to, um, you know, around a 30% a difference in VO2 max, which is critical in endurance activities. But there's also differences in males and females when it comes to the neurological system uh, in the brain. So females generally approach approach pacing differently. So they're they're a little bit better. They're more measured with pacing compared to the males. Males are generally more competitive, and that's what my research also found, that the competition is is greater in the male category. Um, And they approach risk-taking just very different. So all those physiological factors result in between a 5% difference in like ultra-endurance swimming up to 35% difference in competitive weightlifting and other sports that really rely on the upper body. Um, but again, uh, we can see some, some massive differences in some other events, such as boxing. The striking power of males um, is 160% of what the wow. females are. And so, um, so, yes, God has really designed us to be so significantly different that it really impacts uh, the competitiveness if you try to put us on a, on a playing field.
1: Help us understand some of the worldview issues underlying this, because when I hear the differences that you cite, which really are kind of in one sense, common sense, when you look at males and females, it makes sense to separate them out of fairness and protection for girls so they can actually compete and win. What is the worldview perspective that would be pushing against this narrative, actually wanting to get rid of these differences and feeling like that is the moral high ground and, as you quoted earlier, kind of a civil rights movement?
2: Right. So so the overarching philosophical conflict is one of ontology versus autonomy or, or objective truth cal- claims versus more subjective relativism. So... Um, autonomy has really become one of the central tenets of the modern American mind. And you you see this in virtually every Disney movie that my kids watch, um, it's preached. Um, And the suppression of this autonomous spirit in the the individual is one of the greatest um, secular sins that one can commit. Um, And so this is opposed to a more, Uh, a view of objective reality that we would hold to, a created reality um, that is given and recognized rather than developed or assigned. And so um, there's a big clash uh, again with inclusion with that, that first uh, philosophical take um, versus fair competition being um, competition and safety. Um, And so we, we see this, we see this clash being, um, worked out and, and, uh, it, and it's, um, yeah, definitely something that we as Christians can, um, basically go into and, and have some really valuable, um, conversations surrounding this.
0: So Gabe, let me, as we start sort of winding this down, let me ask you a couple, one, one final question. Um, what what do you think will happen to girls' sports if the trends that we see emerging continue um, w- with the encouragement of the new administration?
2: Well, what we're likely to see, what you know, my model was based on on some assumptions that that aren't quite aren't quite being fleshed out yet. However, my model is what the trans activists would want, or or what is their goals, and and so those uh, those assumptions are that that trans transgender numbers would continue to increase or or be substantial uh, in our population, and that um, that it's not a, that it's not a choice; it's more innate. Um, and then they want full representation and full inclusion at every level of society, including sports. And so, if we see this uh, continued push, more and more the modeling that I did in my study would come to fruition um, if uh, being transgender was independent of ability. So, if if you just had uh, a transgender person has an equal likelihood of being a good athlete versus a poor athlete. And so it certainly is something that um, will be an issue um, because if you did not have sex segregation, if we mix the sexes, um, females would not win girls events. That is clear.
1: Yeah, that's heartbreaking as a dad of a daughter who's 13 who just loves to compete the idea that she would be competing against people with just such a grand physical advantage because of their biology um, it's heartbreaking for a generation of girls uh, coming up behind this so let me ask you this question kind of wrap things up what what gospel opportunities do you think there are just for Christians? amidst kind of the transgender policy discussions and changes that are emerging.
2: Yeah. So it's been fascinating. Just, just some of my own contacts with what's going on with the different interest groups that are involved with this. So you have gospel minded Christians uh, pairing up with far left lesbian um, feminists and, um, united in a common cause of promoting and protecting female sports. And so you have some real bridges being built and some opportunities being there. So we have uh, what, what seems to be a, a clamoring and a declaration of objective reality uh, from really a population who seems to have long kind of re- rejected that, at least from a moral standpoint. And so I think there's great opportunity um, to build goodwill out there to be part of some meaningful dialogue and discussions in a way that uh, perhaps you know is, is you know was, was unthinkable just a short time ago. So I personally have had some wonderful conversations with people very much ideologically you know, in, in opposition in so many different areas. But we're able to have those good discussions and you you see it culturally there's there's um there's this whole aspect of the they're, they're now um kind of kind of seeing conservative christians and organizations in a little bit different light such as the alliance defending freedom um, who's been defending christian uh individuals and organizations for a long time now they're defending basically the cause of, of some of these very far left or progressive individuals. And, and the Alliance or, or, and the ACLU, the Democrat Party, and some of the others are kind of in the doghouse right now uh, for this population. And so that's been quite interesting, Gabe, to say the least.
0: Gabe, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I, Sean and I commend you for your courage in getting involved in this research and, you know, for facing the grief and the pushback that I'm sure you've gotten all along the way. Tell us a little bit, uh, where, if our listeners want to want to read more of your research or find out a little bit more about some of the work you've done, how can they access that?
2: Yeah. So, so what we can do is in the show notes, we can, we can put a link to my, um, my study and it's i've made it publicly available open source publishing so everybody can look at it so you can go in there and read the abstract um, and go through there you can follow me on facebook and twitter gabe heigert and uh, we can continue this discussion and i'd love to answer any any more specific questions um, because again Quite a massive study, you know, um, to be distilled down to uh, less than an hour is kind of challenging for
0: sure. Well, we we think you've done a great job of cutting to the chase and, uh, you know, giving the, our, our listeners the con- the really relevant conclusions that you've come to. So we, we appreciate you, uh, you know, we appreciate your brevity in this. Uh, I know there's a lot more to talk about on this, probably worthy of a follow up conversation on this, particularly as as this progresses in the next uh year few you know few years so but Gabe, we're gonna have to stop here for now. We're so delighted you could come on with us. very grateful for your time and for your research uh and for the conclusions that
2: you've you've helped us see so clearly. Well, thank you. appreciate the time and and platform, and appreciate you guys. Um, the discussions that, that you bring to uh, some really important topics. So I think, thank you. I
0: think you can count on us having you back here. This was this was really good stuff.
2: Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you.
0: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically pod- podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including our new fully online bachelor's program in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu Talbot to learn more about that. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.